0: Underground. And after missing last week's show because of the NHL playoffs, we are back with our unique blend of fantasy baseball enlightenment on Rotorub Fantasy Baseball Weekly Podcast, heard every Thursday evening at 9 p.m. EST on Blog Talk Radio. So we're into late April now, which means we're nearly done Autism Awareness Month, which is a big issue for Major League Baseball. This week... Albert Pujols etched his way into immortality with a huge night Tuesday as he reached 500 career dingers. Daniel Nava's slow start has cost him his job as he was optioned to AAA. And the A's rejected a 10-year lease extension to stay at Oakland Coliseum, a move that is sure to raise speculation about the future of the team in Oakland. We're going to cover some of these stories and many more over the next hour or so, so pull up a beanbag chair and get comfy. I, of course, am Roto-Rob, and my guest this week is Roto-Rob NFL editor, Vani Hariri. How are you this evening, Vani?
1: I am doing quite well, sir. How are you doing? I'm
0: going to tell you, I'm doing better in the family of uh, Conrado Morero, the oldest living former Major League Baseball player. He died this week, just two days short of his 103rd birthday. Just five foot five, he actually pitched. For the Nationals in the 1950s, our condolences to his family. Uh, I just want to let everyone know we've got a special guest tonight at around 9.15, 9.20. We're going to loop in uh, Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, who's going to talk to us about some new initiatives at the museum and discuss the general landscape of blacks within the game today. So uh, we're looking forward to talking with him in about 15 minutes. Now, I want to remind you that the chat room and phone lines are open. Uh, Right now, it is me in the chat room, and I'm all by my uh, lonesome there. So feel free to join me. If you want to call in guests, you can reach us at 347-826-7358. Now, before we get into tonight's, or excuse me, this week's news, I want to talk about what's going on over at Wordorob.com. On the baseball side of things, the 2014 Road Arub MLB draft kit is basically done, although we still have the top 30 of our top 65 prospects, uh, and that will be churned out over the next few weeks. Every Sunday, we we'll have the wire troll, Tim McLeod. On Saturday, we'll release part three of the top 65 prospects. Watch for part one of our 2002 MLB draft recap coming soon, written by our new baseball writer, Michael Sepp, who's going to be going. Back in time, looking at uh, some old drafts and figuring out exactly uh, how things shook out in those drafts, how they look in retrospect 10, 12 years later. Basketball, now that uh, the NBA season is wrapped, the Wire troll is done now, but Bob Raymond uh, is expected to release his Wire troll All-Stars next week to officially wrap the fantasy season. Football. We have the Roto Rob Fantasy Football Weekly podcast, heard every Wednesday at one thirty p.m. EST on the same Blog Talk Radio station. It was back this week. It's of course run by Roto Rob NFL editor Josh Johnson and his team of NFL writers, including Nick Wagner and uh, Vonnie Hariri. Here, this week they looked at the AFC South. Yesterday we released Josh's updated and complete mock draft with Nick and bodies to follow over the next couple weeks leading up to the draft. How uh, is your mock draft coming along there, Bonnie?
1: Um, It's coming pretty good. You know, a couple of them have some pretty big changes, some of them not so much. It's always good to see how free agency plays out on a draft, and and hopefully we can give uh, fans a pretty good, uh, good accurate idea of what their teams might be going for.
0: Right on. Well, we're totally looking forward to uh, (coughs) – excuse me while I just cough up a lung. We're totally looking forward to seeing how those play out as we lead up to the actual draft. On the hockey front, <clears throat> this week we had the Wire Troll All-Stars to wrap up another season of fantasy hockey coverage by NHL editor Chris Wassell, who did <coughs> excuse me, a fantastic job as always. Chris promises to check in during the playoffs if there are any major injuries, but otherwise, stay tuned for a draft preview. On the video game side of things, it was a busier week with two reviews. Friday, we looked at 2014 FIFA World Cup. And Tuesday, we reviewed Trials Fusion. So if you dig soccer or motorcycle racing... Check out those games. We are now just 19 articles shy of 3,700 in the site's history and should reach that by mid-May, if not sooner. Don't forget to check us out on Google+. We're just, uh, Roto-Rob's now just 19 views shy of 11,750. So come and join the party. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out Vonnie Hariri on Google+, as well. He's just 17 views shy of 1,075. Woohoo! All right, man. Yeah. So, your team, the New York Yankees, well, Michael Pineda finally is back after two, missing two years with shoulder woes. He looked pretty good this spring. He's off to a fantastic start, but two weeks ago, two weeks ago of course, against the Red Sox, he basically was accused of using pine tar. Then nobody did anything, but he had a big brown glob on his hand that looked pretty damn obvious. And last night, of course, he took the obvious to a new level whats you know, a completely new level, and the Red Sox had had enough, and they called him on it. And sure enough, he had a big splotch of pine tar on his neck that was just hilarious because it was so obvious. Uh, really? I mean, seriously? What is going on with this dude? Tell me about this story. This is just classic, Bonnie.
1: Well, here's the thing. You know, the part of this story that just kind of drives me crazy is everything around it. I mean, obviously, he's using the pine tar, tar, and as everybody stated so many times that, that most – a lot of people use pine That's not really even anything that's weird or, or, or odd, particularly, you know, when it gets a little crisp at night and it's a little harder to get a grip. And you saw at the beginning of that game that he didn't really have his control, and – so he didn't really have it on their first inning. He comes back out the second inning. But the thing that really is just blowing my mind is the homer in me wants to downplay it. But the way it was gooped on his hand the first game, and he called it dirt, Was I, I mean, I think it was a pretty big in, insult to everybody's intelligence. I don't know what else you would have told him because uh, you're not going to admit to it, but it was a pretty big insult to everybody's intelligence. But my thing is yeah. is how do you let this guy leave, leave the dugout? Mm-hmm. What a big swatch of it on his neck knowing that you're going against your rival Red Sox, who you pulled in on the first time and weren't too happy about it. They just couldn't say it because they do it too, and they don't want to open the can of worms. I, I just don't understand how everybody else let him leave.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a great point. I mean, how could you not see him walk out of the dugout? It's a, it's a great point. I mean, the, so the, there's two questions here. I mean, obviously, yes, this is illegal. Pitchers cannot do this, but you're absolutely right. Every pitcher does it. The only advantage it gives you is you're allowed to grip the ball tighter. It is not like doctoring the ball where all of a sudden you're going to put some spin or drop on the ball, you know, or have an unfair advantage. Really, this is simply on a cold night when it's hard to feel your fingers. Just that, that all, all you're trying to do is just, it's like wearing gloves or something, you know, or spitting on your hands, going to your mouth, things that they will allow. But the idea is that everyone does it. Okay, fine. But not everyone is stupid enough to put it on their fucking neck. I mean, seriously? So stupid. So stupid.
1: Anyhow. It is. So, go ahead. Well, I got to complain about one more thing. If you're a pitcher, I understand you want an event. You're going to use it every single time. I get that. But my frustration is, is with the pitching staff, the, the, the leadership. After that happens and you basically get called out for a whole week, on national television, you pull this kid aside and you show him how to hide it, or the minimum, you have the catcher put it on the shin guards and then he applies it and sends him the ball.
0: Come on,
1: man! Like, come on. So well, yes, I'm with that's everybody. What I'm in this.
0: It, that's what I'm saying. It's the stupidity that, that, that's the funny thing here. It's just like. We get that everybody does it, but how could you go and have it all right on your neck, this big shiny thing on your neck? <laughs> I just I saw the picture and I couldn't help but laugh. I'm thinking, <laughs> Really? Do you not do you not see that? No, oh really. man. Anyhow, in mid June last year, of course, we recommended Pineda in the wire troll, but it wasn't a good call as he never did get a chance with the Yankees last year, even after his activation in July. Um so he winds up getting tossed in the game and earned himself a 10-game suspension. That news just came down this evening. He has no plans to appeal it. He says he knows he made a mistake. He says he's never used pine tar before this season. Okay, sure. Now, David Phelps is going to take Pineda's spot during the suspension. Pineda, as I said, off to an amazing start after missing the last couple of years. His K-rate was down early on, but pitching more to contact seems to be working for him. Um, yeah. To me, this is the best pine tar moment since the nineteen eighty three George Brett episode where he lost his mind. Um, yeah. You know what? What do you think about this look? I mean, you saw the big splat, splotch on his neck of pine tar. Okay, like I mean, that's a good look. That's a good look. Now I'm wondering about you. What you think about this? Visualize pine tar on your neck while wearing sports goggles. How, how, how's, how, how's that for You should for
1: be banned from the sport.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you to be banned
1: from the sport if you have both of those on at the same time. You know, the funny thing about it is, too, though, is that when he says it's the first year that he, he's used part of time I mean, you have to believe him, though, because he's clearly not used it before because he doesn't know how to hide it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, if we would have seen it, number one, and number two, like he's not using it like somebody who has used it before, which is, which is really the funny part. Now, the other good thing about a 10-game suspension outside of the fact that, you know, he, he won't be playing, that's frustrating for me as a fan, but at least it will take us into May, which means the chances of him running into a cool game drop tremendously, and <laughs> then he would not have such a useful playing time. So,
0: well, um, there's absolutely no yeah. doubt that Pineda seems to really hate pitching in cold weather. You can see how uncomfortable he was, so. It's, it's an issue there, uh, and you're right, May, it, it's not going to be a factor anymore. Now, the fact that he's finally healthy is great news. But now before we get overjoyed as the results early this year, he has a very high strand rate early on, and that suggests that his bottom line results have been a bit lucky. In fact, his xFIP is 4.21, which tells me he's pitching well, but not nearly as well as the ZRA would, uh, would have you indicate. Uh, Anyhow, you know, he says he's learned from this and it won't happen again. I don't know if that means he's going to try to conceal it better or just won't actually do it again. But, you know, like to me, what he was doing, it's like, like I said, everybody does this, but he seems to do it in such an obvious manner that he's begging to be caught. To me, it was akin like trying to hold up a convenience store without a mask, looking straight up in the camera and smiling and waving. It's like... <laughs> I mean, what's yeah, wrong you, with you,
1: you? You make people have to catch you. I mean, and, and, I, and, at, and at the end of the day, you know, the Red Sox have, have a pitching staff with Buckholz and think, PV and, and those type of guys who have pitched before who who, who use pine Tar a lot. And so they don't want to open up this can of worms, and you know they don't, and particularly against a rival that you're going to have to see quite a bit. And and, and we all know that during the playoff, playoffs when it starts to get cool again, that pine are really, really uh, uh, rears its head. And you certainly don't want any box suspended. So you don't want to open that can of worms where people are scrutinizing your pictures. But when you have it splotched on your neck, you make the umpire have to deal with it. You make the opposing team have to deal with it. You give them no choice. If you put it on their sleeve or anywhere else, you give people an option. And that's why I don't feel bad about this at all. And even being a Yankees fan, I, you know, it sucks having, you know, a pitcher that was pitching really well and, and taking some relief while CC kind of gets his act back together. Um, obviously, Tanaka's been really good and all of that. But, you know, our pitching staff needs to sort itself out. And, so, and with Nova going down, uh, getting Tommy John, you really need a pitcher like that. So it's unfortunate, but it's such a boneheaded move. That he deserves to sit down. There's just no way around
0: it. Well, he's gonna have a couple. He's gonna have a couple of starts to think about what he did. Now, uh, I'm gonna try to call Bob Kendrick. down. we got a special guest, as I mentioned. Bob Kendrick is the uh, is the president of uh, the um, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and he has graciously agreed to come on the show tonight. I just got a text. I want to make sure that's not from him. Uh, oh, he wants me to call him on a cell. It is from him. Okay, I'm glad he did that because hold on I'm just going to call him on his cell right now and loop him in let me just uh, type in his cell phone number here bear with me for one second and let us call Bob now and here we go hopefully uh, he will be answering there <laughs> Hi, Bob. It's uh, Rob Blackstein, Roto-Rob, calling. Uh, you're on the air right now with uh, myself and Bonnie Hariri. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, Bob.
2: Hey, it's a pleasure. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: we are speaking to Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, uh, which is located in Kansas City, Missouri, correct?
2: Yes, it is. Historic 18th and Vine in beautiful Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Fantastic. Now, uh, I understand that you have a new initiative that you launched fairly recently called, uh, the, baseball, the museum launched, called the Hall of Game. And uh, I believe you just had your first um, fundraising event last week uh, in regards to this. Is this correct?
2: It, man, it was incredible. Uh, the Hall of Game is a new event that we established that will annually honor former major leaguers who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. So mm-hmm. you played it with passion. You played it with great determination. You obviously played it with a high level of skill, but you also played it with a little flair, or as the kids would say, a little swag, because that was a part of the Negro League. So you know you had to have that. It was entertainment at its highest level. And so uh, on Saturday, April the 12th, we honored Lou Brock, Joe Morgan, Dave Winfield, and the late, great Roberto Clemente in what was an amazing ceremony.
0: Well, that is quite an inaugural class you've got there. Uh, of course, they are all Hall of Famers, correct?
2: They are. They are all Hall of Famers and, you know, all were in attendance. Roberto Clemente Jr. came in to represent his father. But, you know, the great thing about the Hall of Games is that, you don't have to be in the Hall of Fame to be considered to become a member of the museum's Hall of Game because it is simply how you play the game. And as you guys know, it's, there are a lot of guys who play Major League Baseball who likely deserve to be in the Hall of Fame but who are not. And so it gives us an opportunity basically in how you played the game. is, irregardless of what color your skin may have been. Uh, it's just about how you played the game because, in the Negro League, they didn't care what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? And so if you could play, you can play. And it's that same spirit that we're carrying with the new Hall of Game.
0: Well, that's the that's spirit that all sports should entail, obviously. Uh, when, when kids throw their gloves into the sandlot to play, you know, nobody, nobody should care about, you know, anything other than, you know, I got this guy, I got that guy. It's just, you know, it's the joy of the game, right? It's the joy
2: of the game. And and, and that's what we talk about all the time. And really that's what the museum is all about. It's a celebration. You know, sometimes I think people think the story is going to be a very sad, somber story because it's obviously attached to the ugliness of American segregation. Mm -hmm. But it's not. You know, it is a celebration. It's the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. These men love the game of baseball so much that they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them as they traveled the highways and byways of our country just to play baseball. And their love of our sport not only changed our national pastime, but it changed America for the better.
0: Well, you uh, raise an interesting point, which is a good segue into some of the things we'd like to talk to you about, Bob, uh, in terms of how far the game has come, or how far we've come uh, you know, uh, in terms of minority-wise. Now, I understand, I just read a figure recently that said 7.8% of MLB players are black right now. Now, it seems to me that that is low, and that baseball, in in my mind, continues to lose its top athletes to football and basketball. Now, why, in your mind, can't baseball lure more black athletes to the game?
2: i tell you what, Rob. It's been a question that we've been addressing on a regular basis for the last several years, and I wish I had the answer because mm-hmm. it, it is so, you know, it, it, it's a very complex, I think, situation. And, you know, you referenced the number as it stands today, Going back, it was at about twenty-seven, twenty-eight percent in the nineteen seventies, and it's dwindled now to about seven percent. And so, all of us are alarmed by this because you're right; the sport is losing the urban athlete to those other sports. And, and, and again, as an institution that represents the history of our sport, we want to see all kids play baseball. And obviously, we have um, you know high regards in wanting to see urban kids get an opportunity to play this game. But, you know, today it's not the institutional racism that kept blacks out of the game You know before 1947. Now it's a right. matter of supply and demand. The, the demand is there. We're not, able well, to supply. We're not able to supply.
0: Let me ask you this, Bob. On a more positive note, I would think having a superb all, all-around athlete like Andrew McCutcheon win the MVP last year as he did would help steer more kids towards the game. Are you trying to leverage that at all? Like, it's, he's an ideal role model here for young kids to, to, to you know, uh, gravitate towards baseball, wouldn't you think?
2: Well, you know, he's one of my favorite players. You know, I love watching uh, Andrew play, you know, as I look at guys who play today, and I think that helps. It absolutely helps. But, you know, what has happened is we have a disconnect in, in the African-American community with the game of baseball. And sad to say those days of sandlot baseball that I grew up knowing and loving, those days are over. You know, uh, you go through the urban core and all the sandlots are just barren and vacant. And when the game becomes organized, as it is now, when you play the game today, it's almost played. it has to be played in an organized fashion, the sport becomes very expensive to play. So a sport that was once a blue-collar sport has evolved into a country club kind of sport. You know, an mm-hmm. aluminum bat will now cost you 300 $400. You know, the shoes are expensive. The gloves are expensive. The uniforms, the league fees, all these things, I think, have had some variance in pushing the African-American community away. And particularly if you are from a single-parent home and a low-to-moderate income home, you just simply can't afford for your child to play because, again, baseball doesn't offer full-ride college scholarships. So now well, I've got to make a decision, and when I make that decision, I'm likely to steer my child to basketball and football because it presents the best opportunity for them to get their college education paid for. And, right. and so I think, you know, again, there, there are a lot of socio-economic aspects that has impacted, you know, this rapid decline. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the rise in the other sports. Basketball huh. and football have done a wonderful job of marketing yes. their stars. Absolutely. You know, baseball is still very tradition-rich. You know, nobody's ever bigger than the than the team. Well, it ain't that way in the uh, NFL and I, the NBA.
0: I think baseball is really missing the boat there, and that's a larger issue than this discussion, but I completely agree with you. But <laughs> how is baseball's RBI program done in terms of uh, addressing some of the concerns that you just brought up there, Bob? Well, it
2: has it, it done extremely well. And, you know, we're a big supporter of Kansas City's RBI program where they're running 1,100, 1,200 kids through that program. And, and you know, it is, it is starting to evolve from just a participatory program to the point where young baseball players are being developed through RBI. We've sent some guys to the major leagues over the last several years. And so that's exciting. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the core of it, you know, what, what was really important, beyond the guys going to the major leagues, was getting kids an opportunity to play what I still believe is the greatest game played, baseball. And, and the life lessons that come from baseball. You know, you don't have too many sports where you fail more times than you succeed and you can still be deemed a success. So it True. teaches you a lot about life. And, you know, it saddens me, guys, that I go into schools and I meet kids who have never, ever caught a baseball, thrown a baseball, or enjoy that feel of the first time you hit it and square wow. it up with that bat. You know, That's and it's, strong. It, it, it's really sad.
0: Yeah, that's, that's wrong. Now, Bob, I'm really curious to hear your take on something I read recently. It's a little off topic to what we're just talking about, but it, it, it was during the 40th anniversary celebrations of Hank Aaron breaking the home run record. Yes. And Bud Selig all but refused to acknowledge that Barry Bonds is now the home, baseball's home run king. Now, whether you think Bonds' home run record should count or not is not really relevant to what we're talking about here. But I read someone's reaction to it, someone's response to it, suggesting that Babe Ruth's home run records – shouldn't count because he never had to face black pitchers. And it really got me thinking that you know, this person kind of had a point. I, and I, was, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think of that that hypothesis?
2: Well, here, here's what we know. would be entirely different had the doors to Major League Baseball opened before 1947. And, and, and you can base that on what happened after 1947. So when you talk about Henry Aaron breaking – what was once believed to be a record that was unbreakable. Well, Henry Aaron began his career in the Negro Leagues with the Indianapolis Clowns. Of course. Willie Mays, who hit 660 home runs, and had it not been for military service, would have likely have broken Ruth's record before Hank did. His career began with the Birmingham Black Barons of Mm -hmm. the Negro Leagues. You know, so – there's no question had the doors open for the likes of Cool Papa Bell or a Hilton Smith or a Satchel Paige in his prime or Boo June Wilson, uh, Ray Dandridge, all these great stars who didn't get the opportunity to play. They were too old by 1947. Then I think you can see why I say the record books would be entirely different. There is no, absolutely no question about that.
0: So It's funny because – oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: You know, so I think there's some credence there. You know, now when we look at the game, there were great black pitchers in the Negro League. Many of them never got the opportunity to play in the Major Leagues. You know, so there was, some, there was still some kind of unspoken kind of racism relative to both pitchers and catchers uh, from the Negro League. They really didn't get the opportunity. And, and mm-hmm. so, but, you know, had the doors open and you had black teams playing and you had all these great blacks, Hilton Smith, one of the greatest pitchers ever played this game, And, unfortunately, he was relegated to the Negro Leagues, but when he faced major leaguers, he was like 10-1 in his lifetime in exhibition games against major leaguers. And the same could be said for guys like Leon Day, Bullet Rogan. These guys were superb pitchers. We would have all liked to see all the great stars take the field at the same time. And as baseball fans, we were cheated of that.
0: You know, it's really ironic, Bob, because baseball prides itself on its history, its tradition, its numbers—so many numbers. You don't even have to—you don't even have to say a record. You just say a number, like seven fourteen, and people know what you're talking about. Fifty-six, people know. You know what I mean? It's all about numbers, and you don't even—just there's certain numbers that have such meaning, but. In light of what we just talked about, and of course, in light of more recent years' developments through the '80s and '90s, the PED era that has clouded so many of baseball's records and so much, and the Hall of Fame process in general now, how we're measuring, you know, the all-time grades, comparing them against each other, you look through the history of the game of baseball now, and you're like, it's 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 completely out of whack. It's almost like you've got to look through rose-colored glasses or translate the era of you know the numbers of the era like given this this other information that well he didn't play against black players or how good were these numbers or oh well of course he hit 800 homers i mean he, he was he was on roids it's just i don't know it's a shame if you ask me uh because it really makes me question the great history of the game the the, the tradition of the game you know what i mean
2: yeah, well, you know, and that's that's the stigma that the steroid era has put on on baseball, and yeah. you know, and and the sad part about it is, anytime any amazing feat occurs to date, it is always viewed with a level of skepticism, you know, and that's mm-hmm. sad. because if Josh Gibson was playing today and he hit eighty-four home runs in a single season, the first words would have come out of everybody's mouth, he's it. he's mm-hmm. on something, you know. If Cool Papa Bell was circling the bases in 12 seconds now, oh, man, he's on something. You know, no human being can do that. And so that's, you know, that's the sad part about what has happened and the fact that science has become so prevalent in our sport. You know, because baseball has always been looked upon in this almost purest sense. Maybe sometimes even to a fault because we know that it wasn't. You know, it had its own share of issues that have been gone on for forever. But when we start to look at what we call enhancement, uh, it has changed the entire tenor of everything about our sport now. And so there's this air of anything that happens that is amazing now.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Reverend uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, last week he applauded Bud Selig for baseball's improvement in creating opportunities for minorities over the last 20 years. But you know what, Bob? When I look at the key front office jobs in the history of the game, we've had just four African American general managers. Uh, do you agree with Jesse Jackson's assessment? Well,
2: you know, I, I think there have been some strides made, but you're right because I talk about it from the standpoint when Jackie Robinson breaks color barrier in 1947, he opens the door for black baseball players to come into the major leagues. But there mm-hmm. were great black managers. There were great black coaches. There were great black team physicians, traveling secretaries. You know, when we talk about the Negro Leagues, we're talking about a business model that had every aspect uh, of operating a baseball business. And those guys didn't get that opportunity. You know, you don't get your first black coach in the major leagues until 1962 with Buck O'Neill. You don't get your first black manager in the major leagues until Frank Robinson in the 70s and then those GMs who have been so far and and in between. And and so it has still been a very slow process. Now, baseball has put in measures that have certainly helped improve it, you know, at a rate that maybe is one of the most diverse sports in all of sports, but because it has such a plethora of of foreign players. But, you know, I think there's still some concern about the hierarchy of the game of baseball.
0: especially when compared to football. Absolutely,
2: and, and limited opportunities ever presented
0: themselves. Yeah, I just was wondering what your take on that is, and you know where we where we go next. Um, Bonnie, do you have anything uh, you want to toss about at all? Yeah,
1: um, I had a couple things I wanted to ask you. Well, first, you know, you guys covered uh, you know a lot of it, but you know, as we talked about how baseball can can uh, compete with some of these other sports, basketball, obviously, that's going that's. You know, that's hard to beat because it requires so little to play, you know, um, as far as the basketball court. That literally is synonymous with a uh, park. It, it's a fixture now. Um, you take something like football, like you pointed out earlier, You it's easier to get a scholarship and things of that nature. But when you have a sport where you get hurt less and you get more money, what do you do to create I a situation say. where you can, especially because, you know, there's not really a private incentive for people to build these parks and in urban centers, the most scarce uh, uh, commodity and the most important commodity, the most expensive commodity is space. So how do you get these local municipalities to invest and field and, and, and like them and things of that nature when, when it doesn't really – how do you get over that hump? It's, it's okay. And I know, I know that's a tough question to ask. but
2: And, 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 and it is, and it's a very broad one. And, and again, you know, just as this, this demise of the sport in the urban core didn't occur overnight, you know, it, 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 it took time. It's going to take time to fix it. But, it's, but you're right. You touched on something. It's going to take a community rallying around this sport. And the sport has to become important again in the African-American community. See, Baseball used to be the sport in in the African American community. It's not anymore, and so if, you know, because your child is typically going to play the sport that you love. And, and so that's who you know. Your parents introduce you to the game of baseball. They get you started in the game of baseball. It is a it is a it's a sport that has historically been passed down from generation to generation, from father to son, and, and so. Somewhere along the line, there became this great detachment from the African-American hero, because not only, guys, are we not playing the game, we're not going to games. You don't see black faces in the ballpark watching these games. Now, whether or not the fact that there are no American black stars for them to cheer for has anything to do with that, I don't know, or at least not the degree of American black stars as you had in the 70s. Uh, Maybe that has something to do with it or not. I call myself, I am a baseball fan, so I don't really care what color you are. I just love watching guys play the game. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there's come a great detachment from this sport and the African-American community, and you can almost trace it to the time that the ballpark started leaving the urban core and moving to the suburbs. And, And black fans who did not have necessarily the transportation options to get to those stadiums as they did, you know, as you do now, and, and I think you can almost see that connection start to have an impact on lessening that love of a sport that we were once ratted about. You know, but we're talking the Negro Leagues, and they were filling up ballparks.
0: Haven't we seen a kind of revitalization to, to stadiums coming back to the inner core of the city? Yeah,
2: and, and what has happened,
0: you know, <laughs> The black folks started moving to the suburbs. Stadium came. Well, out of out. this is part of an impossible finalization. <laughs> yeah, usually they tear down the whole inner core of the city. Yeah, it's it's very cyclical, isn't it? Uh, well, but that's, me, that's a great let's, let's, about
1: the ballpark uh, moving away. Let me ask you this, if you don't mind, too, because you know one of my criticisms of baseball is what you guys kind of touched on is the fact that, and this is kind of a two part, um, is the fact that they baseball cares, it seems to care more about the numbers than it does about the players. And particularly right now, especially up in a post-Michael Jordan America where you want to identify with your hero, you want to be like Mike. And we had our Ken Griffey's, and now we're about to lose Derek Jeter. Um, and it doesn't seem like those black heroes can exist at the same time in baseball anymore. We have no touching, but it seems like we lose long when we get one. And we saw it in boxing where people lost interest in boxing because we didn't have any American, particularly any black Amer- uh, American heavyweights for so long. How do we get back to the point where the players are important and you can start connecting to a player? Particularly if you're in inner city youth, you, you want to connect with someone personally that makes you feel like you can achieve something that you didn't think you could achieve before. Numbers don't do that for you. Numbers don't connect no, you. You can't. No, you don't follow don't, numbers. They're fixed.
2: And I think you're right. I, I, you know, I think if anything, you know, perhaps the game needs to look at how it markets its sport, uh, particularly to the urban core, because they, you know, while the numbers are not necessarily where we want them to be in terms of black players, the black players who are playing in the game are superstars, and mm-hmm. and, and they need to be more visible, you know. Um, but you know, it's going to take some time, guys. It, it really well, is. You know, who's this, the top? It, it, who's? We got to be in this for the for the long haul.
0: Who's the top prospect in the game right now, guys? It's uh, Byron Buxton of the Twins. Uh, yes. Uh, Absolutely. Absolute. And he, yes. He, he's, being you know, you can build those the and next what Mike Trout. And if they what ever, if they we've seen over recent years is more and more
2: black players being drafted in the first round. So, you know, there's some progress being made. The urban youth academies are having an impact. You know, they're continuing to build them. The one in Compton, the building in New Orleans. They've got one in Florida. Yeah. You know, I think. You know, those things are starting to J.P. Crawford
0: looks like he's going to be a real success story out of there. Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. Uh, Out out of the Compton, J.P. Crawford, yeah, you've got him in my keeper league. I'm very high on him.
2: Yeah, so it's it's starting to make some impact. But what I do applaud Major League Baseball is that they're not shying away from this. They are, you know, very vigilantly and diligently looking at strategies and ways in which we can reverse this alarming trend. Now, as the caretaker of this rich history known as the Negro Leagues, we want to play our role as well. And we hope that by bringing children into this environment where they can see people who look just like them, who played the game as well as anyone ever played the game, that it will at least give them a basis to understand that they have a history in this sport. And maybe Mm -hmm. that will serve as an impetus to them wanting to pursue the game. You know and so uh it, it is important that kids have an opportunity to play this game and 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 they're missing out uh on some great opportunities associated with this sport.
1: well, I gotta ask you one fun question before we get out of here um and, and because you you're so attached to this history and and obviously a lot of people you know um you know, some of the, you know, some of the more famous Negro League play, players like Satchel Paige and John Gibson and Pop and things of that nature. But it's funny when I go back and I try to, you know, look into a couple of things, and it started for me just by getting the Negro League's code. I actually did it just off the merchandising piece of it, and then I, I kind of educated myself a little bit more. But there's, we hear all of these mythical um, stories. Um, I was just reading one about Smokey Joe Williams where they said he struck out 27 batters. Um, what, what? yeah, what are those type of stories? Do you have any of those stories like that, or those just mythical feats that people may not know about? Or if you could talk about that one. Though.
2: Well, I mean, there's, a, there's a, I mean, really there are so many, but you touched on one. Smokey Joe Williams, one of the greatest pitchers ever, struck out 27 in the game against Kansas City Monarch. Uh, Chet Brewer, who opposed him in that game, struck out like 18-19 himself in, the, in what <laughs> was an epic pitching battle, uh, you know, Slim Jones and Satchel Paige would hook up in Yankee, in Yankee Stadium with 40-plus thousand. Slim Jones, a lot of people thought was going to be the second coming of Satchel Paige, but he was a left-hander. And so Slim and Satchel Paige hook up in a game that ends up in a 1-1 tie in, in extra innings, and it's called because of darkness. In what some still say was one of the greatest pitching duels ever, you know. And so Slim Jones is not a household name. Satchel Paige is, of course and the lore and legend that surrounds a guy like Satchel Paige or a cool Papa Bell or a Josh Gibson who, again, hit 84 home runs in a single season and, you know, hit a ball completely out of Yankee Stadium. And as as impressive as him hitting the ball out of Yankee Stadium, I think what was even more impressive, impressive was the fact that he's playing in a game in Yankee Stadium, guys, and he's fooled on a changeup. And he reaches out with one hand, and hit the ball into the uh, upper deck in right field in Yankee Stadium. And everybody's saying Josh was a very you know soft-spoken, jolly giant of a man. And he's laughing <laughs> as he's circling the bases, because I don't even know if he knew just how strong he really was. Wow. Well,
0: that's the old Yankee Stadium before, before it was remodeled, of course. So uh, that was probably like 4, 430 to the power alleys or 450, like much bigger park than it is now, obviously.
2: Oh, Absolutely.
0: Uh, absolutely yeah, okay. absolute. Wow. Wow. That's great. Man. All right, uh that's about all we have for you. I think Bonnie, you got anything else?
1: Uh no, I mean if you could just kinda of let everybody know where they can go or or, or any websites yeah. or anything like that to kinda of educate themselves or or, you know, kinda of help uh move the cause along, we we'd love to hear yeah.
2: it. Absolutely. Number one, if you're in the Kansas City area, you've got to stop by and see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We're located at 1616 East 18th Street uh, in Kansas City, just a few minutes downtown, just east of downtown in Kansas City. You can find us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com. Opening up a brand-new exhibit next month here called Negro Leagues Baseball, the Spanish spelling of the word baseball, that will celebrate the cultural and historical connections between the Negro Leagues, Latin America, South America, and the Caribbean. It's going to be a fascinating look at a little-known little story relative to baseball. But what I hope it does, guys, is it will help people understand how baseball has been the most unifying sport of them all. And in many aspects, it's been the most unifying aspect of our society. And so these men would go to Latin America Uh, Negro League players would go there, and they were oftentimes the first Americans to play in those countries, and they were treated like heroes, stayed in the finest hotels, ate in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer, come home and be treated like second-class citizens. And and so in this country, the Latin, the Spanish-speaking athlete, particularly that one of darker skin, couldn't play in the major leagues either. So he found Mm -hmm. sanctuary playing in the Negro League. So there's been this brotherhood. Between the Negro Leagues and and Latin America, that very few people knew anything about. We're going to tell that story in an exciting new exhibition that opens May 17th here in Kansas City, will run through September, and at the uh, at the end of that run, we're going to take it down and convert it into a national traveling exhibition.
0: Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Bob. I really, really appreciate your time tonight and your insight. That was a real pleasure talking to you. That's, that's, we've been talking to Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri.
2: Guys, thanks so much for having me. appreciate it. Thank you. Have yourself a good one, Bob. Okay. Bye now. Bye.
0: All right. Well, thanks again to Bob Kendrick there. That was fantastic. Uh, thanks a lot, Vonnie. I uh, really appreciate that. And yeah, let's get back to the dues. Um, so, instant replay.
1: <laughs>
0: major, major screw up last or a couple nights ago, Tuesday night. I don't know if you just caught the video on this there, Bonnie. You know Escobar up to bat for the Rays. Uh, basically, it was a one and two, or excuse me, a two and one count. And it looked like he fouled it off. It really did, and the replay didn't even look like he followed it up, but it actually, he didn't swing, it, hit the, it tipped off the catcher's mitt and just went to the backstop. Uh, but the umpire thought it was a strike and made it 2-2. Two and two. Next thing you know, Escobar's kind of like, what, 2-2? Two and two? Samuel Duduna thought he had struck him out, and he's like, wait a second, isn't that strike three? Didn't I just strike him out? The umpires got confused. They go and they check the replay, and they sit it's actually four and two at this point. It's already taken ball four. He should have taken first base. But they, they somehow, even though they look at the replay, they somehow get it to three and two, which is unbelievable. They miss a ball in there. They're looking at it. So they send him back up, and he strikes out looking. Now, in the end, it didn't matter to Bay won the game. But, I mean, what a completely embarrassing situation for baseball. Did, did you get a look at the whole sequence there,
1: I did. And here's the thing. Well, first of all, you know, in baseball especially, I mean, there's no way to actually say that it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Because who knows what could happen? Who knows what kind of run could have they could have put on? And the thing about it is, is that it's just like the Pineda thing. It's really when you look at it in context that you realize how ridiculous that it is. I mean, when you just look at it, you can see how you could honestly think it's a foul. That's, that's not difficult. If only you weren't watching the broadcast team go to the same place at the same time and come to the correct conclusion. If it was just them, you could I could probably I probably wouldn't feel the same way about it. But when you're actually watching the broadcasters say, Oh, there's a ball, there's a ball, up, oh, yep, that one's a ball, there's a strike, strike, ball and they figure it out and they come back out with a bad with the with the with the with the bad decision, with the wrong decision. It just kind of seems so crazy that that could happen, especially when you're dealing with somebody who's dedicated to it.
0: I, 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 don't, I don't know
1: how, how it happens.
0: It's really embarrassing. Major League Baseball, of course, acknowledged that it failed to correct the pitch count, and they came out with a statement that basically just said, an error was made when replay officials and supervisors mistakenly thought one of the pitches was a foul ball when it was actually a ball. Okay. I mean, you know, they admit they made a mistake, but, like, Wow. The whole, isn't the whole point of replay to get it right? It's it's these are balls and strikes. We're not like we're not recounting votes from like an election or something. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really two. crazy.
1: It's, yeah, it, 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 I knew that there would be a point that they would try to catch get the swing of it. You know what I mean? Because even football, people don't really remember it as much. But you know, in football, when we first when they first started doing replay, uh, it, it was a little rocky. So it's not, it's not a layup. I'm not going to say that. But it's one of those things when you've got a dedicated guy and you're coming with instant replay after the NFL has gone through that experience and has done something that is a part of the game now that will never be out of it that people really enjoy. Um, for you to come after that, post that, after you fought it for so long, To not be able to get things like this right or have the training or have whatever you need to be able to make these calls correct just seems so crazy to me. And I I think the MLB got a black eye on this one.
0: They did. They really did. And you know what I wonder uh, a little bit, Von, is that the umpire, as I was watching the replay, the umpire seemed really loopy during the whole thing, like really out of it. I'm wondering... (laughs) If knowing that they have the safety net of instant replay, have they kind of mentally checked out to an extent? Because I don't ever remember seeing an umpire, like, not be completely cognizant of what is, oh, sure, they screw up every now and then, but there's three other ones, and they're going to set them straight right away. You know what I mean? But the whole team just seemed kind of like, what is going on? They just seemed like really elderly people or something.
1: Oh, my goodness. You're so right. Here's the thing. First of all, you're calling it. You're calling them. What are you talking about? You can't figure it out. You're calling them. Who, who, who else is calling the balls and strikes? And you have a counter. And you would think that the third base um, that's supposed to have your back might even have it. I mean, well, so yeah. even, even, even in live action, you would think between the two of you, you counting, you calling them out, and having the third base um, having your back that you would be able to figure it out. But then instant replay and somebody sitting in the booth somewhere looking at it dedicated you're telling him you can't get it right. He, he, he didn't even look short sure when he came away from the replay. He didn't look short. Sure.
0: No, no, he didn't. That's ah. just very embarrassing all around. It really was. Uh, you know, really? for baseball. Okay, the owners are meeting in New York in three weeks. I hope this is one of the issues they will be reviewing because this can't happen. This just can't. Now, as far as Escobar goes, he was 28th in our shortstop rankings in late February. But he's barely a top 50 so far. The Rays, I believe, are going to regret giving him that two-year extension. First of all, we're talking about a noted douchebag. We all know Unile Escobar (laughs) is a complete douchebag, okay? Like, we all saw that in Toronto, but, I mean, we already knew it, but he made it quite – everyone knows he's a douchebag. Through 20 games, his extra base pop has regressed. He's striking out more. He's showing no speed whatsoever, not that this has ever been a big part of his game, career-high six, 30 total steals in eight-year career, including the season. Right now, to me, he is a below-replacement-level player. Whatever value he has comes from his glove work, which we as fantasy owners don't really give a crap about unless he is so bad defensively that he gets moved from the position. Your thoughts on Yuno know, Escobar the, there, Vonnie? I mean, to me, it couldn't have happened to uh, a nicer guy.
1: Well, holy cow, you just never I – mean, I mean, you really got them down to a T, like you said. I mean, uh, you know, defense is all well and good, but when we're talking about fantasy, it, you know, it's um, it's what you can do as a plate and on the backs, and you're not doing that. And here's the thing. People can tolerate you being a D-bag if you produce, but the very second you stop producing it, and all we're left with is the fact that you're a D-bag, can't take it, can't have it. Yeah. Those people go away immediately. Well, yeah, I just you don't know why
0: Tampa Bay gave him an extension. <clears throat> what were they thinking? I mean, I they obviously don't give a crap about clubhouse chemistry. That's not factored in, you know. I mean, because just no, a yeah, absolutely. Time before he upsets the apple cart, there. So uh, our last story. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm really losing my voice tonight. I don't know what. <clears throat> uh, last story tonight. Chris Sale, the uh, ace of the White Sox, he got hurt this week, lands on the DL, but seems to have dodged a bullet. The injury could have been far worse uh, to one of the game's premier lefties. He's gone on the DL with a forearm strain. Uh, basically, he's being called uh, a flexor muscle strain in his left arm. Uh, what's, the, uh, what's the dealio here, there, Bonnie.
1: Well, like you said, I mean, he dodged the bullet. But th- th- honestly, th- I think the most annoying thing that's going to come out of this point, and th- keep in mind, he's having, he was having a, a really good year, and it's looking like, you know, things are starting to line up for this kid. So, I mean, all, you know, it's, it's sad to see, but at least, you know, uh, they think that he's going to come back in a m- minimum amount of time. But the biggest headache for him is that he's going to have to start hearing about his delivery again. You know, mm-hmm. you finally get to the point where you think you can shut people up, and then all of a sudden, now you have to hear about your delivery again and people are going to start pressuring you to change up something. Because that, that's been working actually well for the kid. It's just so painful to look at because it's so old school, you know, kind of just odd looking that it feels like he's going to throw his arm out of the socket every time he throws a pitch. And he threw, I think, uh, career high 127 the other day mm-hmm. um, in terms of pitches. And so it makes you really nervous. Um and so I think that's the worst thing for him is that he's going to have to start hearing all that chatter again.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things to be worried about here. First of all, forearm strain, always a predecessor to Tommy John surgery. So that's red flag number one. As you mentioned, his violent delivery, never will Chris Dale be mentioned in a video which talks about good mechanics. He's always had a violent delivery. and It's always suggested that he's an injury risk because of it. And you're absolutely right. Here we go again. The unfortunate other part, unfortunate part is that he missed his chance to start Tuesday against Justin Verlander, and that was going to be one of the most anticipated pitching matchups of the early season. Um, you're right. The team says he's going to miss. The, it's not serious. He'll miss a minimum of 15 days, which means he'll be eligible to come off the DL May 3rd. A uh, few red flags here. You mentioned the 127 pitches. I saw that in his last start career, high, and I, when I heard that, I got worried. So when this news came, I got to say, I can't say I was really surprised. I was disappointed as an owner, hugely disappointed. But when I saw that 127 pitches, I just shook my head and just said, why are you throwing, why are you letting him throw that many pitches? So he skips his side session Sunday because I guess he was still, uh, you know, from the overworked uh, start in his last week. Has an MRI and ligament clean, thankfully. That's the good news. But I mean, He can't be replaced by the White Sox or fantasy owners. He really can't. The White Sox called up Charlie Leesman to make the start Tuesday, and then Andre Rienzo made his first start of the season Wednesday. Um, But this guy's in the top 10 in Ks. He's in the top four in wins, whip and win percentage. He's yet to throw a complete game this season after tossing four last year, but that pitch count was way too high. Uh, Way too high. And I'm not even a pitch cow no. guy, but
1: that, was, that jumped out at you.
0: Well, the thing about Sale is, don't forget, uh, converted reliever turned to a starter two years ago. The White Sox have babied him. They really have. Two years ago, they gave him extra off days between starts in the second half. Uh, occasionally, they shut him down for, for a week at a time periodically just to they made a miss starts like this is all scheduled to keep him healthy all designed to keep him healthy and for the most part it has with uh... you know a few hiccups here and there but this is a red flag um... and like you said really figuring it out and undefeated so far stellar 2.30 era early stages of a career year no doubt but um... few things that are you know jumping out at me uh, that, that are worrisome. His fastball was down in velocity early on, but it's recovered over the last couple of weeks. I don't think that has anything to do with uh, other than the 127-pitch outing. K-rate's up this year, so check. No problem there. He's only 25, and the fact that his slider is his best pitch is worrisome. I always watch sliders. You get up to the 40, 40% slider range, injury. But he hasn't been throwing it as much as he did last year. So, again, not a red flag. Uh, I don't know what the deal is here. Other than that, I think he just simply got overworked. I'm going to, based on his his peripherals, I'm going to assume that he dodged a bullet and then a couple weeks of rest just with a doctor order. But do not be letting this guy throw 127 pitches anymore. I mean, you know, you've seen him, eh? He's six foot six. He yes. weighs one hundred and eighty pounds. He eats like eighteen cheeseburgers a day, and he can't gain any weight. I don't have that problem myself, but you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nor do I.
0: Yeah, like, but you know, he tries his hardest to add weight, which will give him endurance. No, can't do it. Uh, so, who's a
1: training guru?
0: Yeah, he does. He, I mean, he's got to convert that into muscle. But I mean, he obviously can't bulk up as a pitcher. Uh, but he is a bean pole, and that that 's another worse. What do you do as a fantasy owner now Bonnie how do you replace this guy for two weeks
1: um, i well as like you pointed out you can 't really replace him i think this just has to be a situation where you just got to pay attention the next two weeks. I think you just got to keep playing with your rotation and just try to place the spots and and try to uh you know try to get the right stats to line up and until so you can get him back i don 't think you can, i don 't think there's a player that can Um, replace them, I just think you just got to really, you really got to watch your team. You got to move your spots as much as you can and then just try to, you know, fill in the blanks.
0: Yeah, well, obviously, Chris Sales don't grow on the waiver wire, and you probably missed your chance of grabbing Martin Perez, Martin Perez last week. So guys that could help you this week who are still potentially out there include Alfredo Simon of Cincy, worth a look. Tyson Ross, been massively inconsistent, but he sure looks good when he's on. And Willie Peralta of Milwaukee, they are options to tide you over while you wait out the two or three starts sale will uh, miss. Uh, But, yeah, hopefully this is just a glitch because this guy, he's the real deal. But you're right about that delivery. Every time I see it, it's just... Makes it, just, me it,
1: just, it just looks like it hurts. And at the end of the day, though, you know after this, they're going to bring down this count. You know, they're going to go back to, you know, the pace of them a little bit. I don't think you should do it too much because I, I, I'm a person that believes that your body has to go through a physical breakthrough in order to be able to take that type of velocity or whatever. I don't think you can dial somebody down and then put the ball in their hands in a spot and want them to do what they need to do to win. I think you have to allow their bodies to kind of break through. That said, one twenty seven is way too much. And I think, you know, I think they need to start looking at the style. He mentioned himself that one of the biggest factors in terms of his pitching and his success is his forearm strength and his form. so when you're having forearm issues, that is one of the things that he says is the key component to him not getting injured. And like you said, that's a precursor to time of John. And so I think you have to find somebody that thinks about the body differently. And one thing that's bad about baseball is that they are traditionalists, and they get fixed in doing things a certain way. And this particular guy needs someone to think about his body differently. His delivery is different. He needs to strengthen it different. He needs to treat it different. And and they need to understand him as a person and not as a pitcher, and I think he'll have a better chance of staying healthy.
0: Well, I have no faith in Robin Ventura as a manager. However, the pitching coach in Chicago, Don Cooper, is really well-respected, knows what he's doing, knows how to keep his pitchers healthy for the most part. Um, he, like, he is kind of, a, to me, um, an unsung pitching coach star. But I think what happened in this particular scenario is he was locking horns with John Lester, the Red Sox, in a real pitcher's duel. I think they got caught up in the moment lester of course is a bull he's built like a workhorse is supposed to be you know he's tall he's thick he can throw 125 pitches and bounce back because he's got the body for it right i think they let Mm -hmm. sale match match him pitch for pitch and they made a huge mistake they were the it's april for god's sakes you're not in a pennant race you know what i mean you've got to look at the big picture i think they get swept up in the moment but that's inexcusable it's I'm guessing that's what happened, but it's still inexcusable in April to be, like, screwing around with your ace that you need. If you have any hope in hell of being around and playing meaningful games in September, you need this guy. You know, so look at the big picture, people.
1: You sure do. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. So let's talk some box scores before we rock out of here there, Bonnie. Uh, now, I was looking at the Kansas City-Cleveland game, and Cleveland wound up whipping the Royals tonight 5-1. to one. Corey Kluber was the story of this one. He fanned a career-high 11 batters in his first-ever complete game, a four-hitter. He's sure to be a popular waiver wire claim this week. Uh, so if we're talking about guys that you might want to replace sale with, Kluber might be one you want to look at. Go ahead and grab them if you're looking for pitching help just expect some inconsistency there because that's been his deal this year he is the first indian with a complete game since justin masterson did it on june 30th last year uh, this win evens his record at two and two lowers his area to 3.90 no walks very impressive took just 101 pitches to get through the game 75 strikes really in control in this game Klober. very much in control David Murphy had a two-run single and scored a run. He's playing way more often lately and is up to 290, so he's become pretty much a must-own in AL-only leagues. And you might want to give him a look if you're having outfield issues in a mixed league as well. As Trubal Cabrera had a two-run double for the Indians, he also singled as part of his second straight multi-hit effort. So if he's been dropped in a shallow league, give him a second look. His power has been pretty much non-existent, so it was nice to see it double today. For the Royals, not much to discuss. Omar Infante, one for three with the only run, also struck out once, but he's up to 280 on the year. He's hit much better lately and is now pretty much a must-own, ale-only league asset. Jared Dyson was two for three, struck out once and stole a base, finally getting some at-bats now that Lorenzo Kane is out, so he might be worth a look in deep ale-only league. Uh, for the Royals, Bruce Chen got the start. He got rocked and dropping eight to a losing record. Lasted just four and a third innings. Ripped for six hits and five earned runs. Struck out two, walked one. Um, Seventy-five pitches, forty-nine strikes. ERA is up to seven point four five. Ugh. You know he looked awesome in his season debut, but since then for Chen it has been all downhill. He needs to be dumped in all formats and is likely to lose his rotation spot. Very soon. Long man Michael Marriott looked sharp in tossing three and two-thirds shutout innings. Just one hit, 4Ks, no walks. Trimmed his ERA to 2.35. Could you get a crack at Chen's rotation spot? I don't know. He made just one start at AAA last year. How about Danny Duffy? Lights out in a long relief roll, too, and just missed out on the final starter job. If Chen is going to lose his starting job, uh, my money is on grabbing Danny Duffy right away. Bonnie, Reds Pirates, uh great rivalry there. What's uh what happened there in that game today?
1: Uh yeah, well I mean that one was pretty much uh 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 and uh, uh that that kind of made that. Um so the Reds that one two to one. Um the Reds bounced back. I mean they started off the uh season going three and eight and then now they're up to uh, five hundred and obviously I mean five hundred is not necessarily what, where you want to be, but given the start turned in the right direction. Um uh what you saw there was is is I, I mentioned to you that I'm starting to like the way that the problems are looking a little bit better. I mean, they're they're not looking good right now, but um I did, I just have more hope in, in terms of that team and, and, and obviously adding um Ike Davis and things of that nature kinda of helps the bats and takes a little bit of pressure off the and, and all of those type of things. But in this particular game, Ryan look had a couple of uh, great plays, uh um, speaking with the double to deep center, um that just missed the glove. Uh, that was able to bring in some scores, uh, Joey Votto and Frazier on the, on the two-run double there. Um, Alfred was a shallow to score for uh, 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 Pittsburgh. But, you know, the thing about it is, is that, like I said, these guys, um, uh, uh, I, I like the way they're, where they're handling their staff, um, Cincinnati in particular. Uh, you know, they're doing it by committee. You know, you got guys that are basically doing, you know, that, that are taking out one batter, uh, Liqueur and Broxton and those type of guys um, are filling that out. And so they were able to take the game. There've been pretty close games. It wasn't a whole lot of things that were interesting, to be honest with you. And a lot of guys that probably have the most fantasy value are sure to be taken, um, like your your Broxins and your Vitals and your Frazers and things of that nature. But I mean, it's right. a pretty solid game. It's a close game, but it's going to be one of those one of those things where these guys are going to have to be playing small ball. They don't have premium bats necessarily. They have pretty solid bats on both sides of the ball. And I think um, I, I think by you know, saving your uh, uh, bullpens and, and pitching smart. Um, both of these teams, I think, would do well. Uh, the Reds, though, seem to be on the roll.
0: Uh, well, while you were paying attention in the NL Central, I was uh, looking at the AL Central where the White Sox and Tigers were squaring off. Uh, this game was won by Detroit 7-4. to four. And Mickey Cabrera's big story here, he's coming around, people. Had a pair of two-out singles to drive in three runs now has eight hits in his last three games to reach 250, has three RBI games in two of his last three, and I would say the buy-low window is closing there. Max Scherzer was the other big star for Detroit today. He wasn't at his best, yet he did rack up 10Ks. He's only struggled once in his five starts, and there's nothing wrong with his 2.45 ERA, that's for sure. Gordon Beckham for the White Sox made a season debut. He had missed the entire year so far, well, three weeks, I guess, with a strained oblique, and it was not worth the wait. He was 0 for 4 with 3Ks. Maybe you want to take a flyer on him in an AL only league, but man, I'm not a believer. And all this does is hurt Marcus Simeon's value, if you ask me. For the White Sox, Adam Dunn was two for four with two runs and RBI, struck out once, of course, had a double and his fifth homer of the year. He sat out Wednesday because he's always struggled against Drew Smiley, Tiger starter, but the day off sure did him well. Keep an eye on him in AL only leagues as if he gets hot, he can be a real asset. Speaking of hot, Diane Visiedo continues to rake for the White Sox. Three for four with two runs, a single, a double, and his first triple of the year. Just two days ago, he had a career-high four hits, leads the American League in hitting, and has been one of the top pickups of the week. But He's still widely available. I'd say grab him now in all formats. Stop listening to me. Go to your waiver wire and grab Diane Visiedo, because this guy is in for a serious, serious year, especially in the wake of of, uh, Garcia going down there for the year. Uh, He has really taken advantage. For Detroit, Rajay Davis also had a big game. He was 3-for-5 with a run and two RBI, struck out once, had a single, double, and a homer. Davis has also been a hugely popular waiver wire pickup lately. If you want to get in on this action, you better hurry up as he's now owned in over 60% of leagues. His on-base percentage is now 400. That's 82 points above his career mark. And if he keeps that up, he's going to steal a hell of a lot of bases and leave Tiger fans asking, Andy who? Of course, in reference, of course, to Andy Dirks whose injury seems like a blessing in disguise now, given what Davis is doing, I'll tell you. For the Palehos, Jose Quintana had a quality start, but wasn't exactly sharp in taking the loss and slipping to a losing record. Six innings, seven hits, three earned runs, struck out three, no walks, gave up a homer. His ERA is up to 3.90. Scherzer moves to winning record with his six innings of work in which he gave up seven hits, two earned runs, one walk and one homer. Had to throw 110 pitches to get through six economical Mr. Scherzer. Al Albuquerque got the hold with a shadowed inning. The Tigers are desperately going to need him to be strong and stay healthy this year. Given that Bruce Rondon is done for the year and both Joe Chamberlain and Joe Nathan are struggling right now, Detroit has some bullpen issues that they are going to need to work through. Back to the uh, NL, there, uh, the Cardinals were playing the Mets today. A seemingly a seeming mismatch. Did it work out that way there, Bonnie?
1: Well, you know the, uh, the you know the card started off with the lead, and uh, you pretty much thought it was going to go that way until um, so you got the uh, ball rolling. Um, with Chris Young, who 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 actually right now is probably underperforming a little bit. I, I think he has a little bit more upside than what you show right now. So he's a guy that you know might be able to might be available, or somebody that you could take a look at. But Bartolo Colon, my favorite knucklehead. Um actually had a uh, had a pretty strong game. I mean, he's actually like, having a pretty decent season. I mean he's two and three. His ERA is is a touch under uh, uh, under five, so it's a little obviously it's a little high for my he's pretty decent width, but he seems to have better control than what he's had before and he's not talking as much, so that's always a positive. So um <laughs> you know, that that's somebody that for whatever reason has always ended up on my teams and things of that nature and, and uh uh you know, obviously he could be a, a pretty inconsistent but um, he actually has bailed me out plenty of times. Um, Chris Young obviously is, is somebody that, like I said, is, is, is somebody I think has some upside where you got somebody like Curtis Granderson who is no longer a beneficiary of that short porch who seems to be slumping. People don't really realize that, you know, when Curtis Granderson came over to the Yankees from Detroit, he couldn't really hit both ways. He wasn't effective hitting both ways, and then obviously um, uh, with, some, with some help from some batting coaches, and as Yankees, he's able to hit both ways, and obviously you benefit from the short ports. You probably pick up, you know, 10, 15 home runs that way if you're a solid hitter to begin with. And now he seems to be struggling a little bit. Um, luckily, this particular game, uh, he got bailed out by Daniel Murphy, who who was actually um, uh, looking pretty good with one, uh, uh, um, and, and about seven RBIs in. So he's looking pretty good. That's the person right there that I think has some – has some upside and some value that I think is really going to drive these guys through. So the game ended up uh, – the Mets ended up coming back. They're looking really good right now, at least some of the team. Um, uh, I thought the cards might have in this one, to be honest with you, but um, it kind of ended up being the, uh, uh, the, the other way.
0: Well, for the Mets' sake, although I've never been a Mets fan, let's hope Granderson isn't Jason Bay Part 2. Um, now, over in the American League, the final game we were looking at tonight was uh, – Minnesota, oh, sorry, not the final game, excuse me, one other game. Minnesota-Tampa Bay, no, that noted rivalry, you know, long-time rivals. And this game was a old, old-style shootout, not much pitching to talk about. Minnesota beat Tampa Bay today 9-7. to Aaron Hicks was the hero for the Twins, spanking a three-run homer. His first long ball since July 14th of last year. And Kurt Suzuki did it again for the Twins with another three RBI. With the win uh, for the Twins, Ron Gardenhire, manager Ron Gardenhier, has passed Chuck Dressen to move into sole possession of 59th place with 1,009 wins. So congratulations go out to Gardy. And big, uh, another big up here. The man formerly known as Leo Nunes made his first appearance as Juan Carlos Oviedo today for the Rays, his first appearance in the big since september 21st 2011 suzuki as i mentioned three for four with three singles and a run to raise his ba to 310 all three rbi came with two outs but he also had an error still he has seen the majority of the playing time in uh at catcher for many and right now is doing enough to fend off top prospect uh yasmil pinto who everyone seems to think is going to take over the job at any given moment. But I'd say go ahead and add Suzuki in AL only or two-catcher formats. All he's done is drive in 17 runs in 17 games, for God's sakes. What the hell else do you want him to do? For Tampa Bay, David DeJesus showed some signs of life again. One for three, a couple runs, a couple RBIs, and a walk. He also grounded into a double play. But he did it his first homer of the year, and he had three hits Tuesday. So look out. Now up to seventy i I'd say put him on your radar in AL only leagues and see if he continues to thaw from his awful start. For many, Ricky Nolasco got a cheap win to even his record, but in six innings he was tagged for 10 hits and six earned runs, a home run. He struck out one and walked two. He's given up at least five earned runs in four to five starts this year. Yeah. Now remind me again why the ch- Twins shelled out serious coin for this dude? You go ahead and drop him in all formats until he gets his act together because the guy is just completely lame Now for Minnesota, Michael Tonkin got a hold and has pitched very well so far. That's consecutive games he earned a hold. Don't be shocked if he sneaks into a more responsible position with Jared Burton struggling. I could see a situation where Tonkin becomes the top setup man in Minnesota very soon. So if your league counts holds, that is a consideration. Glenn Perkins, meanwhile, the twin closer, was a perfect. He went in the ninth, striking out two for his fifth save. Like most closers, he had a couple rough outings early on, but he has been flawless the past two and a half weeks. Finally, for the Rays, Eric Bedard started, was roughed up, four innings, five hits, four earned runs, struck out three, walked five. Took the loss to drop to 0-1 as year. He's up to 7.45. Ugh. Clearly, Bedard is not the answer right now. You know, he got some love in and the and only leagues lately because he's getting his chance with all the Ray rotation injuries. But if you picked him up, send him right back from whence he came. And Heath Bell. I mean, normally I wouldn't give a shit about Heath Bell, but his line tonight kind of jumped out at me. He, he, got, he, got, he, got, he had to throw an inning in two-thirds because Bedard only lasted four. He got five hits and five earned runs and a homer. His ERA is up to 8.25, and for whatever reason, if he is owned, he needs to be dumped in all formats pronto. Now back to the National League, what's going on? Another famous rivalry, of course, is Arizona and the Cubs there, Bonnie. What's going on there?
1: So you've got the Diamondbacks and the Cubs, and both of these teams are, are really struggling, to be honest with you. I mean, there's okay. not a whole lot of great things going on. I mean, both of them have poor, uh, poor records right now. But one thing I really, I, I really like is, is I always like to see um, where the stars are, how they're behaving, how they're dealing with the adversity, and who they're blaming. Miguel was asked, and, and he said it's not the coaching staff. It's, 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 it's not their fault. We're not getting it done. And so this is one particular day where he, you know, he really, uh, I mean, he really tried to get it done. I mean, uh, and, and I think he's looking I think he's looking pretty good right now. I mean, he's above average in a couple things. I mean, it's you know, uh, his batting average is a little bit low right now. Uh, but he had a pretty good game uh, this particular game. He doubled the right rod right out of the gate and got him going. And he really didn't settle down after that. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, for the Cubs, the only real – bright spot in that whole thing uh, to me is Anthony Rizzo, who I'm high on right now. Um, you, you know, I think he's playing uh, pretty well. And I, I mean, above his career averages, I mean, almost everything is up. I mean, slugging on base the whole nine. And I just like the way he's trending. I like the way he's looking. That's a I, um, I actually wish I had somebody that I, I really love there. Um, but, obviously, the cool story to me, actually, this one was more of a story game. Um, you know, baseball wise, uh, you know the uh, Diamondbacks kind of got on them and, and and never really let up. So it was one of those type of games. But um, I thought the cool story was actually uh, uh, Mike Buehler and um, getting his first win from you know uh, um, his first major league win in the city that he grew up in in Wrigley. I mean, you got what does that feel like? You know, That's to true. to have your first game there. And to win, I just, I just thought it was huge, and, and and it's not like you know, obviously some people are lucky enough. You take somebody like a Derek Jeter, who was a lifelong Yankees fan and got to play for the Yankees, came through the farm system and all that type of thing. But to have your first win uh, going against that team um, has to be huge. I mean, his nerves had to be crazy. But you know, he put in six and two thirds. Um, he looked pretty clean the whole time. Uh, he had pretty good control and things of that nature. So. Um, That's another guy. um, Obviously, for him, you know, really having two starts, I think it's probably early, you know, to see what he's looking at. But 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 with those type of nerves, to be able to produce like that and to be able to look as as clean as he did, um, I think that's somebody to look like as as well. But I just thought that was a really great story, being his uh, his his Uh, first win.
0: So absolutely, what would have been even cooler is if it was yesterday for the hundredth anniversary of Wrigley. That would have been. Oh, that would have been crazy. Yeah, that would have been really like something to tell Mama about. Uh, He would have been Uh, puking in a tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else going on with the D-backs, Cubs? Uh, No, that's
1: pretty much it. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. That game is kind of boring.
0: Yeah, that's all right. Sometimes games are boring. That's my understanding, anyhow. Uh, The art is making interest out of a boring game. Just a couple of quick hits before we go off the air here. Uh, Sunday marks the 20th anniversary of Scott Erickson, who the previous year allowed the most hits in the majors, uh, pitching Minnie's first no-hitter in 27 years when the Twins beat Milwaukee 6-0. You remember uh, Scott Erickson there, Vonnie? Uh, say that again. You remember Scott Erickson? I do. Yeah. Uh, he, he was something in, in his time. He, he had some injury problems kind of end his career. But, you know, he was a workhorse. Uh,
1: yeah, he, he had his moments. Um, you know, I, I you know, I, I think I think sometimes again, this is kind of my pet peeve, you know, a lot of times because baseball is such a numbers game like we talked about earlier, like it's it's either you are a Cy Young Hall of Famer or sometimes you get lost in a shuffle. Sometimes you're just a really good pitcher for a couple of years and you help a team
0: win. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I always got the sense that he could have been better than he was. He had, a, he had a pretty good career, but I always felt like maybe he left something on the table because I think he was middling for a while and then suddenly figured it out and had a few awesome years and then just as quickly faded away. So he had a period of dominance that was pretty small. So that's why, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he's not really remembered that much. But uh, you were talking about the Cubs earlier. They made a few moves today. Outfielder Justin Ruggiano wound up on the 15-day DL because of a strained left hamstring. So in his place, they promoted left-hander Zach Roscupp, and they also brought up righty Neil Ramirez from AAA, and in return, they sent down righty Blake Parker to AAA. A um, couple other things. Carlos Gomez in Milwaukee recently shifted into leadoff spot with great results. Bud Black evoked the memory of Ricky Henderson to compare him to Carlos Gomez. Like, holy shit, hey dude, this guy. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, he's he's playing, man. He's playing. Smoking. Smoky. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, he was a top prospect back in the day, but then it just kind of looked like oh, he's never going to achieve that uh, potential. He's going to top out as a fourth outfielder. No, well, he broke the mold there and. Because, I mean, of course, it looked like for a while that he couldn't, uh, he looked like a platoon player because, you know, he had problems uh, batting uh, against certain pitchers. Meanwhile, Texas, Kevin Kuzminov scheduled to see a back specialist tomorrow. The Rangers' injury woes continue. Uh, Adrian Beltre is scheduled to be activated tomorrow, so the two may just switch places there. See what Kuzmanov was doing with Beltre out, Player of the Week last year?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and, that's a nice, and that is, a that is a, uh, you know, a great thing to have when you have somebody sit down and you find out that you have this talent. I mean, not everybody comes out of the gate like a trout or something like that, where they just, you know, just on fire from first at bat on, you know. Sometimes you got to, you know, you got to have that Drew Bledsoe thing happen, <laughs> you know, to find sure. that Tom Brady.
0: Well, I mean, by all rights, uh, Kuzminov should have been out of the game 10 years ago. Like, it's just... He was a top, top prospect because of his power, and he's always stuck around with the promise of power. I mean, power is just something that people won't give up on, right? Like, you know, when you have that kind of monumental power, people won't give up on you. So he kept getting his chances, and he disappeared for a while. But, boy, last week he was Mr. All-Star, and now his backside thing up, and it's just Typical Kuzminov luck. Just when he starts to get his career back on track, you know, he's hit a snag there. Now, speaking of getting career back on track, final note uh, tonight. Joe Nathan uh, in the Detroit game didn't mention it, but he did earn his fourth save in six tries. Now, he's had a real rough start, but maybe he's getting his act together after that dead-arm period. Boy, what's with all the closers this year, eh, man? I mean, struggling city. Wow. Well,
1: I- you well, know, it's, it's, especially when you're talking about Nathan, man, because when he was with the Twins, I mean, we're talking about this guy looked like he was going to be the thing, you know what I mean, like really going to be the thing, like straight legit, and then you go straight that arm. I mean, that has just got to be so tough. That's got to be so oh, tough. And, and and it seems to be happening more and more, and and, and I kind of wonder, you know, obviously the, the wisdom is is that, you know, you guys, you want these guys to pitch, you know, intense, both for short periods of time, and, and, I, and it just kind of is – Strange how many of these guys are going down, and how frequently.
0: It's, you know, it's been a it's been a concern for a few years now. I mean, we call it the closer carousel. It started about three years ago, where it got to the point where I realized, from a fantasy fantasy perspective, I just don't value closers the way other people do because there's so few in the game that you can actually count on. That doesn't matter. I know I picked this guy, and I know he's going to save thirty to forty games. It's just going to happen. There's so few, and there's, and there's less and less. I mean, Of course, we lost the ultimate one, Mariano Rivera, who was money in the bank. Now he's gone, and it's like, I mean, Pablo Bond used to be money in the bank. Not so much anymore. It's just, it's a shit show out there, and I'm like, I'm not investing a high pick in this. Basically, my philosophy is I can rebuild my bullpen and the supplemental draft every year, and I'm not going to bend over and spend big money trying to get a closer. I'm just not. You know, it's it's crazy, man.
1: Well, yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't invest in them now, you know. And, and, and not to mention, they're, they're like wide receivers too. You know, they're temper, temperamental. They need, you know, they need their own little thing. They need their, you know, they got to come out to the rest. Their music is not right and they don't come, you know. A lot of yeah. stars have to align for some of these guys to come out there and really just do their thing. They have to either be super pumped up or whatever it is. And I just don't like people having to come to work and need super special conditions to be successful. And a lot of them need that. I don't know why that is, but they just seem to be those kind of players. I want a guy that's gonna come in and do his job. I want when it's time to go down, you play in a sandman and I know that these dudes are about to go sit down.
0: Well you're absolutely right. <laughs> in that had special situations. How many times do you see a closer come in a non safe situation? He's got a four run, five run lead, whatever, and he gets up two, three runs. How many yep. times does that happen? I mean, it's like, you know what? Your job is to get people out. I'm sorry. Just get them out. Like, you know.
1: It, it, makes, it makes me crazy. It I mean, going back to, Well, well, me being, you know, a Yankee guy again, you know, I, the first person that pops into my mind is at Chamberlain. You know, you just take a guy, you know, that just looks like he has so much potential. It's just such an emotional dude. It's just. So emotional and <laughs> just needs stuff to happen in a certain way. But be yeah. doesn't just lose; he gets beat up, you know. Uh, and, then, uh, and, and there's a lot of guys, know. Right
0: yeah, job of the Hun there is one high maintenance dude, absolutely, absolutely high maintenance. Anyways, almost time uh, for the LA Kings Santa Jose Sharks game four. Kings desperately trying to stave off elimination tonight. So I uh, want to wish them luck. I want to thank uh, my co-host tonight, uh, Bonnie Hariri, for joining me. Thank you so much, and thanks so much once again to Bob Kendrick, who was uh, with us earlier, the uh, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, who uh, really gave us some great insight on uh, the state of the game uh, as far as minorities go. So that was really enlightening talk. And, uh, yeah, we're out of here, man. Uh, Thanks again, Bonnie. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, I appreciate it, and uh, uh, see you guys next time.
0: Yeah, we'll be back. Uh, we may or may not be back next week. We'll see how things go, uh, but stay tuned. You'll find out on the website. In the meantime, I'm going to sign off with some Sean Mulrain, open door, and uh, we're, we're out. Uh, have a good one, everyone.
1: I right, see. You.